Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners on what to expect in the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, Sam Bendet, part of the Crack Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses, who is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security. Uh, Not only is he an expert on the Russian military, but he is also an expert uh, on Russia's unmanned. He's one of the world's leading experts on unmanned capabilities, especially Russia's unmanned capabilities. Sam, thanks as always for joining us. Glad to be back, Vago. Thank you. Uh, it's it's always a pleasure having you on the program. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Sam, we are uh, 100 days uh, into this war. Give us a snapshot of where we are and where we're going. Um, how, you know, Russia is constantly adjusting its tactics. It's proving to be more successful. Uh, it's grinding away. Ukraine made some gains. It's trading back some of that territory now, uh, apparently around Kharkiv and elsewhere. Uh, Talk to us about where we are, where we're going. That's correct. Uh, Russian military is making incremental gains, but the front overall, especially in the eastern part of the country, hasn't changed much since we spoke last a couple of weeks ago. Russian military is trying to capture um, the crucial city of Severodonetsk, and uh, it's it's nearby city of Lysychansk. Last time we spoke, there was a salient that formed around Ukrainian defenses in those cities, and the Russian military wanted to close the salient and cut off thousands of Ukrainian fighters. That hasn't happened. The urban fighting in Severodonetsk has been very brutal and grinding. Um, in a seesaw pattern, Russian military claimed it captured most of the city, then Ukrainians claimed that they counterattacked. Now that the Russians are saying that they are, in fact, in control of most of the city, but the Russian military, despite its new tactics, despite its better logistic logistics, it's been unable to really um, create the sort of a, a massive punch and destroy a large part of the Ukrainian defenses like they probably planned earlier. And so now there are incremental gains made, but uh, the Russian military is better organized now. It's using artillery, multiple launch rocket systems. It's using its own forces as well as allied forces. And I think uh, the allied forces coming out of Donetsk and Lugansk people's republics is a story in and of itself, because despite the fact that a lot of these forces are actually proving rather capable when compared to other forces that Russian uh, military is fielding. There's also some discontent amongst these um, militias from Donetsk and Lugansk in how they're used and how they're supplied and and how they're commanded by the Russians against a very capable Ukrainian military. Uh, The story with the Ukrainian military hasn't changed again since last time we spoke, meaning um, it suffered a high degree of attrition. It lost a lot of soldiers. Uh, The president, Ukrainian president recently admitted that they are losing uh, a lot of people on a daily basis, killed and wounded. Uh, And so the Ukrainians are seeking more capability, more weapons and more systems to keep the Russian forces at arm's length. And so, again, the front is more or less static in the sense that there hasn't been a major breakthrough. There hasn't been a major attack or counterattack either by the Russians or the Ukrainians. Uh, But the Russian military is organizing itself better. It is trying to fight, uh, fight in a more educated manner and and it's trying to better use its sources. 
how uh, much of a difference are Western arms making uh, in the Ukrainian campaign? Since the very beginning, Vladimir Putin has threatened uh, any country that's helping Ukraine uh, with punishment. Uh, Western militaries have pressed ahead in delivering uh, that aid, whether in the form of armored vehicles and indeed uh, multiple launch rocket, United States, HIMARS, uh, UK uh, agreed um, to uh, send multiple launch rockets uh, to, to Ukraine as well. How much of a difference are these Western capabilities making in Ukraine's uh, effort to defend itself and push back the invaders? They're making a significant effort, but these weapons have to be present on the battlefield in large numbers to really make a dent. If there are only a few HIMARS systems present, then yes, they can strike Russian positions uh, at a great distance. But if that's only done incrementally, it isn't ultimately going to stop the Russian advance. Um, and so here, I think the Western aid, the Western weapons, and the Russian advance is really kind of at the intersection of the main goals uh, by both Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine wants to expel the Russian invading force all the way back to its internationally recognized border. And now they're talking about actually expelling the Russian force from both the Donetsk and Lugansk unrecognized people's republics, a territory that uh, uh, the Russian military captured and helped and helped hold since 2015. For the Russian military and for the Kremlin, the goal is to secure all of Donetsk and Lugansk regions. And so these highly incompatible goals are at the heart of the type of warfare that is conducted. Um, but again, with the, uh, with the large number of forces present, with the Ukrainian military capable of mobilizing a lot of soldiers, with the Ukra Ukrainian military still capable of holding territory, inflict damage on the Russians, and the Russian military, again, fighting a much tighter, uh, much better uh, logistically um, commanded force, uh, we don't really have uh, very significant breakthroughs uh, by either military with the Russian force hoping to uh, push further west from Donbass and the Ukrainian military trying to hold them off uh, at length. And so weapons like HIMARS, uh, long-range artillery, is crucial in this type of war because if Ukraine is able to command a large number of these weapons, they're able to strike Russian uh, military at a safer distance where the Russian artillery and Russian multiple launch rocket systems can get to the Ukrainian forces. Let me take you to the question of war goals and how the Russians are adjusting them, right? There is, uh, you know, some European nations uh, have been suggesting to Ukraine, although from a Ukrainian perspective, it seems like pressure uh, to accept a deal, you know, give up uh, Luhansk, give up Donetsk. That's what the Russians are interested in. Whereas actually, it seems like the Russians are interested in far more than just those two autonomous republics, as as they declared the, in, in uh, this, quote, special military operation, because Russia tried to take all of Ukraine uh, originally. Um, you know, are, are the Russian aims isolated to Donetsk and Luhansk? Or is it, I want to take the whole southern part of the country and, and, and slowly try to take as much of it as I can, or at least make it, you know, not just take a fifth of it, but make it actually an unviable state? Well, I think it's uh, important to take a look at what the situation on the ground is right now. And Russian military does have significant control 
over the uh, southern portion of Ukraine, which is north of the Crimea. Russian military still maintains uh, control over the portions of Donetsk and Lugansk. It helped capture back in 2015. And now it has actually connected the Donetsk region and the southern regions by the capture of Mariupol. Russia's original aim um, after it became clear that Kiev would not be captured and Ukrainian government would not fall, was to take all of Donetsk and Lugansk, because we have to remember that when the fighting stopped and became static in 2015, the pro-Russian governments and the pro-Russian forces only controlled less than half of the actual Donetsk region and about a third of the Lugansk region. And so Russian aims at controlling all of Donetsk and Lugansk uh, would be sort of a justifiable reason for this mass scale invasion, for the casualties sustained, for the damage sustained to themselves, to their soldiers, to the military, and to the Ukraine proper, because in their mind, they would be liberating all of the regions that are supposed to be more uh, Russia-leaning, according to the Kremlin. And that's why it's pouring so many resources into the fight in Donetsk and Lugansk. And that's why it's kind of grinding away at the Ukrainian military. By uh, controlling the uh, land already captured, uh, land already under the control of the Russian and the pro-Russian forces, uh, Russia puts Ukraine in an untenable position and um, maybe sets the stage for long-term diplomatic negotiations over what the final outcome is going to be, because that outcome is now going to depend on a number of other factors, such as the state of the global economy, state of the food supply chains, state of the Russian economy, and the state of the, um, uh, I guess, uh, the population um in Russia, such as how the Russian population feels about the war, how it's affected by the war, and how other parts of the former Soviet states, which are still tied to Russia uh, for economic, industrial, and other reasons, also feel about the war. Uh, but again, we have to look at what the situation on the ground is and whether it is possible for the Ukrainians to capture most of the territory lost prior to February 2022, and whether it is even possible for the Ukrainian military to push the Russian forces out of the Donetsk and Lugansk regions that the Russians basically held since 2015. Um, you mentioned uh, food um, and uh, the Russians, uh, you know, many news stories about how uh, Russia has been targeting uh, Ukrainian grain stores and destroying them. Obviously, over the weekend was uh, the tragic image of a very uh, important grain stock being destroyed um, and uh, Russia seizing Ukrainian wheat, selling it on the market um, at, at the same time. Right. Part of the Russian toolkit or Putin's toolkit in this uh, is uh, to use uh, and exploit every lever at his disposal, cause a food crisis, use that, that food, food crisis as a weapon, especially to try to isolate uh, the West uh, from nations in Africa and elsewhere in the world that are desperate for food, right? I mean, the United States may have sent a, a cable uh, to 14 countries warning them that they may be getting stolen Ukrainian wheat. If you have hungry citizens to feed, you don't. You might not be as interested where that wheat comes from uh, at the end of the day. Um you know, how is Russia using all of the tools at its disposal to try to survive because ultimately uh, and pressure the West into into capitulation because he is pushing on an open door. A lot of Western leaders have talked about the importance of negotiating, avoid humiliating Putin. We have to try to make a deal. Um, you know, where 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 are we going and what are the tools Russia is using at its disposal to get there? 
I think it's important to recognize that militarily, uh, Russian military is going to be probably satisfied with incremental gains only, unless a significant military breakthrough is made by either force with the help of new weapons or new tactics. Uh, we are settling into a, a protracted sort of uh, stalemated conflict with forces digging in, exchanging artillery fires, and again, um, uh, avoiding uh, or unable to make any significant breakthrough. And so other uh, uh, other options on the table for Russia is to force the international community, especially United States and their allies, to negotiate the status of the captured territories, the, cap, the, the status of Ukraine, the status of Russian influence in Ukraine by actually influencing countries far beyond this war. And of course, um, food shortages, uh, especially countries that will be affected by um, by grain not delivered from Ukraine and Russia, countries across Africa, Middle East, and other parts of the world, um, this this type of food shortage is going to affect the most vulnerable populations and the most vulnerable countries that depend on these food exports. And that, of course, in, in turn puts pressure on the international community, on the United States to act and uh, to seek a solution to the food crisis, solution to the um, global supply chain interruptions, and of course, solution to, or if not a solution, then at least uh, um, a discussion on the war in Ukraine, uh, not necessarily on Russia's terms, but certainly in the shadow of the food shortage that is caused by this war. And Kremlin understands that. I mean, that's why it's doing it. Uh, it is a uh, it is a tactic that is having an effect. It is a tactic that is felt far beyond um, the borders of Ukraine all around the world. And the question is uh, how the international community is going to respond to this Russian tactic. Uh, that is a very good question. Uh, we have two minutes, two questions. Uh, one of them, uh, are Western sanctions, uh, uh, Sam, impeding Russia's ability to reconstitute its conventional military capability? I think that's a good question. I think a lot of um, responses to that question depend on the type of industry and uh, on the type of weapons uh, we are discussing. In general, the Western sanctions have had a significant effect on the Russian high-tech economy and on the military industrial enterprises and efforts, which are part of that um, high-tech economy, the economy that depends on the global supply chains and uh, international cooperation. Uh, what the long-term effect is going to be on the Russian weapon systems, weapons manufacturing, I think remains to be seen. Some systems and weapons are indeed going to be affected significantly. Other weapons and systems, I'm not so sure because they have used older technologies um, and um, the technologies that aren't necessarily at the forefront of the uh, sanctions list um, as of today. And so this is an evolving issue. We're basically two months into the effect of sanctions on the Russian economy. Again, some parts of the Russian economy are indeed going to be greatly affected. But the Russian government is also uh, trying to wiggle out of it. Uh, it is instituting different initiatives. It's reaching out to international partners. It's instituting parallel imports, meaning import of different technologies um, uh, without the permission of the actual origin, uh, originator or the actual uh, initial manufacturer. It is uh, trying to pour money into projects and efforts. It is trying to jumpstart its high-tech ecosystem by um, giving funds and uh, freedom, relative freedom, of course, uh, to some of the domestic companies and efforts which are trying to step into the void left by the 
departed Western and other international companies. Again, Russia is reaching out to China, India. Um, some um, co- some countries like Turkey are actually stepping into the void left by some of the um, Western supply chains. Um, and for example, Turkey is offering its own uh, consumer high-tech products. So there's a lot to consider here. There's a lot of factors. Uh, Russia does have certain capabilities. It does have certain wiggle room, but the room um, is shrinking, I think, the longer this war goes on. Because right now, Russia still has stockpiles of certain technologies, which are going to eventually diminish and run out very soon. Uh, Russia does have enough money to try and plug some of the problems created by these sanctions. But again, the question is for how long is it going to last? So this is something me and my team are monitoring. It's a very interesting question, uh, simply because we're dealing with an unprecedented level of sanctions for an economy like Russia. And we only have about 30 seconds left. Uh, Give us the latest on uh, the unmanned war, which you've been watching very closely. What we're seeing is the greater share of commercial off-the-shelf drones, like the Chinese-made Mavic, which are now used even more so by the regular Russian forces, as well as by Russian allies, and of course, by the Ukrainians. Despite the DJI, which is um, the Chinese manufacturer of many of these drones, uh, despite their official statement that they have stopped supplying these drones to uh, Russian and Ukrainian markets, so they're not used in war, there's plenty of crowd funded efforts taking place uh, for the Ukrainians and, of course, for the Russian military itself, where these commercial drones are sent to the front lines. But what's interesting is that both Ukrainian and the Russian military are claiming uh, a very high number of drones lost by the adversary. And I think a lot of these drones are actually these simple, easy to use, relatively cheap DJI Chinese made drones, which are used by all sides to conduct intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, uh, and uh, target acquisition to guide artillery and to guide weapons to targets. The growing share of these commercial technologies alongside of regular military technology, something that we will be studying for a long time once this conflict concludes because it introduced um, an unsecured commercial technology into the war that was supposed to be fought only by military-grade technology. So this is something me and my team are monitoring, and I think we're going to see more and more commercial drones uh, in this war going forward. Sam, thanks very much, as always, for joining us. All the best to you and the team. Thanks so much, Fargo. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners on what to expect on, uh, in the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, uh, thanks so much for joining us and welcome back. Thanks a lot, Fago. Good to be here. Uh, it's great. It's great to great to have you back on. Very very productive week for you uh, after your uh, return from uh, France uh, and from Israel. Um, you know, w- walk us through what struck you as interesting over the course of uh, of the week, uh, Byron, because you were writing pieces on everything from you know baby formula uh, to uh, Germany uh, to historical uh, lessons and more. Sure. So the baby formula reference was just to the you know. It's kind of a reminder about what um, concentrated industries, what, what, what are some of the risks are associated with that? I mean, they're, they're, we've had a baby formula shortage in the United States because it became a very concentrated industry. And one of the main suppliers had problems at a plant that they had to shut down. And I don't expect the Department of Defense to 
to change its attitudes as a result of a baby formula crisis in the United States. But it's just a reminder that, um, you know, when you really do neck down to one or two key suppliers, you know, if, if one of them has a problem for whatever reason, um, it, it could be any number of factors. Uh, you know, you, you probably want to put some more depth and resiliency into your defense industrial base. Um, or, you know, you risk having what's happened with baby formula in the United States, which it's just, it's hard to get. Um, you've had to import stuff from, from Europe. Uh, uh, and, and so that, that was just, just one thought there. Um, the German reference was just, you know, <clears throat> there were press reports mainly in Europe, quite, quite frankly. I didn't see a whole lot of U.S. coverage of this, but there had been a list of um, programs and kind of a, how, how the German government was going to spend the 100 billion euro increase uh, that, that now I guess there's been a political agreement in Germany to push ahead with this. And I, I thought, you know, some of this was known, the F-35As, um, Chinook helicopters, Eurofighters, you know, but it was also interesting. <clears throat> there were naval systems in there um, and um, a, a pretty hefty sum also dedicated to uh, command control and communications, radios, uh, networks. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, development. And, you know, I, I expect we're going to see more of this as, as European governments, you know, they're in a budget cycle where, you know, they really are moving into a phase, <clears throat> literally, you know, June, July, and August, where the 2023 budgets are going to start to come together. And, um, and so I think we're, we're going to see more of this. We saw some reports, uh, I guess, the week prior about what the Netherlands was, how they, how they were planning to spend a, a defense spending increase, uh, which I, th I thought was pretty intriguing as well. Um, and then, you know, you had, well, you know, uh, Secretary of the Army uh, spoke at Atlanta Council, Secretary of the Air Force spoke at Hudson Institute. Um, I, I thought it was interesting because, you know, one of the things that Secretary War uh, Warmoth called out was, um, army recruitment as, as a real issue. And, you know, it, it's a tight labor market. I mean, you actually saw with the FY23 uh, budget requests, the army looked at a reduction in end strength because they just, they don't want to lower recruiting standards, but, um, you know, couple out with the unemployment report that came out last week, and it's still a very tight labor market. And I think this is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's probably going to be a problem that will persist for a while. Uh, and obviously, she talked a little bit about the, you know, the Army is obviously keenly focused, as is, I'm sure, all the other military services on lessons learned from Russia, the Russo-Ukraine war. Um, you know, she obviously called out the drone threat. Uh, but I thought the other interesting one, no surprise here, is, is the necessity to maintain munition stockpiles. And then she did say that... Um, the Madrid NATO summit that's coming up at the end of June, you know, one of, one of the key issues there is going to be, are you going to forward deploy U.S. forces or kind of keep them on a rotational basis? And uh, that, that's going to be an interesting, um, an interesting debate that I think we'll, we'll have again. And, you know, we, we saw this when the Trump administration actually talked about reducing uh, troop strength uh, in Europe, you know, U.S. forces that were directly deployed to Europe. And there, there are some very good arguments for keeping forces, uh, you know, closer in Europe rather than, 
moving them back to the United States or, or elsewhere. So, And that, of course, raises right uh, NATO-Russia uh, founding act uh, questions about whether or not uh, troops uh, in that part, right? I mean, we've tried to keep them rotational to try to respect an agreement that actually a lot of people have argued um, Russia has made thoroughly OBE. Yeah. You, you wrote two other notes, right? I mean, one were additional lessons of the war, uh, Byron. And, and then the other one was um, sort of Russia as a prior state uh, and, and, and yeah. what that means. Walk us, walk us through your thinking on both. Well, I think, I think you know, it, it's an open question. I mean, if Russia is a pariah state, it, it, you know, there's this, I guess, kind of the breaking news was, you know, Lavrov was supposed to visit Serbia and that trip got canceled because he, they, no one was going to allow him overflight rights, uh, overflight rights to get to Serbia. So, it's kind of interesting, you know, how isolated Russia could be. You know, the point, and this was kind of riffing off actually a, a YouTube video that had been posted by, it's an independent Russian news source. You know, the link is in the note, but it was just kind of interesting. He did this, he visited Iran and said, you know, hey, this is what it's like to live in a pariah state. You know, we, we, we Russians now have the honor of being the most sanctioned country in the world. And we've displaced Iran, which had that uh, that leading rank. And so he didn't really talk about the military aspects of this. But, you know, you could see, I mean, I just don't know how Russia is going to retain or rebuild the conventional military force that they may have eyed um, in their longer range plans prior to the Ukraine invasion. I mean, their, their access to Western technology is going to be constrained, they're going to have to be a lot more creative about they how they um, smuggle or, or evade some of these sanctions. Um, you know, so, so it's going to be interesting. And I, I also think their own capacity um, to replace some of the equipment that's been lost in Ukraine, you know, it's probably, going to, that, that's why I think it's interesting to look at Iran or North Korea and kind of how they've been investing. I mean, you know, the first thing that's not going to change at all is Russia's status as a nuclear power. Um, they're going to probably fall back on that. But uh, but I also think if you look at what Iran has been able to do with ballistic missiles, um, unmanned air systems, um, you know, and even providing them to the Houthis, uh, you know, these are fairly low cost, high return on investment type of, of actions. It, it's too soon to call exactly what will play out for the Russian military. But, you know, the idea that they're going to be able to rebuild a massive conventional armor um, slash aerospace force, uh, you know, as an isolated country, as a pariah country, I, th I think that's very debatable. And so you'll probably see them mimic or, or follow some of the paths that North Korea and Iran have taken as they, they've looked to rebuild their militaries. Do, do you get a sense that the more people talk about pushing Russia too far, Russia then really does interpret that as a sign of weakness and tends to act out and saber rattle? Um, there was the massive destruction, right? Carl Bildt had a great uh, tweet, former uh, Swedish prime minister, um, you know, about how much grain was being destroyed by the Russians targeted, uh, right. you know, and now uh, more, uh, you know, there were stories over the weekend about how the Russians are holding hostage Ukrainian grain. I mean, effectively, it's it's to make the global food crisis worse right. uh, and then use that as as additional leverage. I mean, do, do you do you find that 
you know, every every time we sort of back up and agree not to do something, not to intimidate him is when he tends to act up even more. Yeah, but I've also been fascinated, Vago, by how we've you've seen this steady escalation in what the West has been willing to provide. Um, it's been willing to provide Ukraine. You know, we, we've kind of gone through these different stages. And I think now, you know, when you start seeing, okay, M109s, uh, K9s from Finland, you know, self-propelled artillery and the ammunition to go at, I mean, I, the, the MLRS debate and, and HIMARS from the United States and the weapons that go with that. I mean, I just think you're going to continue to see this escalation of equipment that we're going to provide to Russia. And I, uh, I'm sorry, that we're going to provide to Ukraine um, in order for them to try and, and roll back uh, and, and really inflict severe pain on Russia. Um, so I do kind of wonder, you know, when, when it, you know, what's the news going to be like this June, July, and August on food insecurity and what's going to happen in poor countries um, or, or less developed countries uh, that were heavily reliant on Russian and Ukrainian grain. And you can just see how there's a, an escalatory path at some point where um, Russia sure as hell shouldn't be benefiting uh, for, for you know, its food exports. Um, and that kind of raises the question about, you know, will there be an attempt to break a, a, a blockade that Russia's imposed on Ukraine? Uh, now, you know, to your what you just mentioned a second ago, you know, there was, I don't, I don't recall where, but, um, uh, you know, imagery of a major grain elevator storage facility in Ukraine that had been targeted by Russia. And in, in, it was, I think, in Mikolaev. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so, you, you know, you can just see, like, we're, 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 we're moving ahead on this and, and we're coming up to points. And that's why I just think this is still a pretty volatile, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think this is going to, there, there won't be a ceasefire. There's not going to be a, um, you know, Ukraine's been pretty adamant that we're not going to surrender territory to Russia, um, despite, you know, what Henry Kissinger may believe, but, um, uh, this is, you know, there, there's going to be a fight that's going to go on for a while. And I think the interesting point is, you know, as you've seen the U S and Europe move to, um, to, to push Russia harder through Ukraine, you know, at some point that can also spill into uh, into the blockade and, and these food insecurity issues. Um, uh, we've got uh, a couple of minutes left, but I want to ask you about China. Speaking about another emboldened power, um, really interesting uh, incident between China uh, and, on, and an Australian P8. Uh, apparently, talk to us about what you think that means, especially as the Shangri-La dialogue uh, convenes uh, next weekend. Yeah, because we've we've just spent a couple of minutes talking about Russia, Ukraine, but you know this incident where I guess a Chinese aircraft intercepted a Australian P eight and dumped chaff, uh, you know that was ingested by the aircraft's engines, and um, you know that's not a very uh, polite or safe move to say the very least. Um, so it, it's a kind of you know recklessness. Uh, that, you know, I, I also, I updated the, the monthly kind of flight incursions to Taiwan's air defense identification zone. And May was a pretty hefty month for 
Chinese air activity. I think there were over 100 aircraft um, in obviously in separate incidents, excluding for the first time a Sukhoi 35 that the um, People's Liberation Army Air Force operates. It was included in one of these incursion operations. So um, I, I just think this coming week, um, I think it's June 10th through the 12th is the Shangri-La di dialogue, which IISS holds in Singapore. You've got the Secretary of Defense of the United States, Chinese Defense Minister, and um, I think Prime Minister of Japan and France's new Defense Minister um, all speaking at that event. So it, it, it's, it's just a reminder that, um, you know, uh, <laughs> as much as we focus on Russia and Ukraine and the news coming out of there, uh, China certainly matters. This is, as you've obviously talked about many, many times on your show. All right. Before I ask you about uh, the top things the audience should focus on in the week ahead in about a minute, uh, Frank Kendall uh, has indicated that the Next Generation Air Dominance uh, uh, program is moving ahead to engineering manufacturing development. What does that mean for you? What, what, do you, what, are, what are you drawing from that? Well, I think, think the, the, two, the two issues, Fago, are what's the price? Um, you know, this is not, <laughs> this is not a low-cost aircraft. It's, it's going to be an F-22 replacement in effect. Um, and he's indicated, you know, this is this is going to come with a pretty hefty price tag. Um, I don't know. There's been a lot of industry speculation about who does what and, you know, who, who might uh, build this thing. Um, you know, may, maybe the good news on that program, and I'd say the same thing is true for the B-22, uh, the B-21 bomber. He did not say that, uh, ah, the program's a mess. It's behind schedule. You know, so... So I, I, I tip my hat for the Air Force in saying they've certainly learned some lessons with the B-21 program, which by all accounts, yeah, there's still some risk in it, but I mean, it doesn't appear to have had a major hiccup. And I'd say the same thing with NGAD, that, that that appears to be pushing ahead at a pretty impressive pace. Um, is there risk? Sure, but but you know may, maybe maybe there really are some lessons learned from the F thirty five that have incorporated in these new development programs. And we talked about that uh, on uh, yesterday's business podcast for folks who are interested uh, interested in it. Um, very quickly, week ahead, um, what should the audience be focused on uh, this week? Well, you've got RSA in San Francisco, which is a major cybersecurity conference. I mentioned the Shangri La dialogue. Their House Armed Services subcommittee markups. They typically don't generate a lot of news, um, you know, but they're, I think their briefings, uh, press briefings on, on, uh, on Monday on this. Uh, so, you know, what are some of the issues that, that House Armed Services is going to be focusing on with National Defense Authorization Act? Uh, CAE, um, Canadian based simulator company, uh, is holding an investor meeting. Uh, Monday and Tuesday. So, you know, just kind of their state on uh, their take on the state of the simulator market, um, you know, and, and that may blow back into some of these military aircraft programs and what their state is. So uh, there's a Senate <clears throat> Foreign Relations Committee on Syrian policy, a hearing that they're going to hold. Um, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be a fairly quiet week, although I always say that with, uh, you know, that's famous last words, right? It's, it's supposed to be a quiet week and then all sorts of stuff happens. So. Exactly. Nothing could possibly go wrong exactly. uh, now. Uh, Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Uh, as always, looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot.
You got it, man. Thanks, Fago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.